All right, at this time, we typically dismiss our kids to their kids' class if they'd like to make their way to that. If you're unaware, uh, we have a kids' class that just meets every Sunday at this time in the room at the back of this larger room. And uh, you're more than welcome to use that, kids. And then we also, for those of you who may not be aware, we have a nursery, a fully staffed nursery that meets every Sunday or is available every Sunday just in this room, kind of off the corner here. And you're more than welcome to use that if you'd like. And also want to let you know, we're also always happy for kids right here in the worship service. That's great, too. So, well, I want to invite you at this time to join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And we will be considering verses 21 to 34 together this morning. So, Mark, chapter 4. I just want to start by asking you a question. Based on what your eyes can see, who does it look like is winning right now? The kingdom of this world with Satan as prince or the kingdom of God with Jesus as Lord? Well, I mean, I think if we're honest here, it looks like the kingdom of this world is trouncing Jesus. Evil and injustice are everywhere. Uh, The power and dominion of those arrayed against Jesus is absolutely astonishing. And meanwhile, it almost seems as if Christians are some kind of uh, small fringe group with a threatened existence. Almost like it's just like it, it can almost just be stamped out pretty quickly. Christianity. Perhaps Christianity is growing, maybe, but it feels like it might even be shrinking. Is that what your eyes see? And if so, what are you supposed to make of that? Does God really win? I mean, we might expect that if God has a kingdom, that it would look a bit different than what we see right now with our human eyes. When you think about a king and a kingdom, you probably think about a great ruler, and you probably think about a vast realm and dominion and domain. Like King Caesar, for example. You think about him and other great rulers throughout history. Caesar had an immense power, rule, authority, dominion. I mean, the guy had armies and horses and chariots and wealth, possessions and subjects. And yet when Jesus arrived on the scene, he makes this big statement that the kingdom of God was at hand. And yet there wasn't a whole lot of that sort of thing to be seen. So perhaps... You and I are misunderstanding some things about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus spoke about the kingdom, you need to hear what he has to say. And it's it's really wonderful. It's really great. And so we're going to jump into chapter 4 of Mark here this morning, beginning in chapter 1. And I'll read all the way down through verse 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, 
which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. There are two aspects of the kingdom that you need to hear about. I mean, I'm sure there are way more than that, but there are two in particular from this text today that Jesus wants you to hear about. So here's the first one. You need to hear about the revelation of the, king, of the kingdom. Can we see it? Where is this thing? Uh, where do we see it? How do we see it? When do we see it? Jesus has something to say about that, about the revelation of the kingdom. According to Jesus, the kingdom has been and it will be revealed. Look back at verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Well, of course not. Who would, why would you do that? In Bible times, uh, small oil lamps were used to provide light, and they would give uh, the most light when those little oil lamps were put up on a stand, elevated a bit to light up a room. Most translations of verse 21 say something uh, passive like this. Is a lamp brought? Which is an appropriate translation uh, because it's an inanimate object. It can't bring itself anywhere unless it's like in Beauty and the Beast and lamps are walking in, you know. But that's not the case uh, with inanimate objects. However, the original phrase could legitimately be translated like this. Does the lamp come? That's a really weird way to talk about an inanimate object like a lamp. Mark has already used that language of coming in reference to Jesus and the kingdom. We see a lot of that in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 7, 9, 14, and 15. You see this language of coming, coming. Jesus came, Jesus came, Jesus came. Jesus had come, and in his coming came, we might say, the kingdom. It seems that the lamp refers to the coming of Jesus. The king had come, but it didn't exactly look like that, did it? Most people weren't seeing or recognizing the king. They weren't seeing the light. Look at verses 21 to 23 again. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I think that verse 22 is conveying that the lordship and kingship of Jesus may have been somewhat veiled. Uh, The language here is hidden or secret. Uh, It may have been somewhat hidden, veiled, or secret in the initial coming of Jesus, but his lordship would certainly be revealed. Jesus and the kingdom had not come for the purpose of being concealed, but revealed. Why would you put a lamp under something? You wouldn't do that. Jesus came to be put on the lampstand and to light up the room. And if it's not clear, if it's somehow hidden or secret, one day he will be revealed in all of his glory as the king of the kingdom particularly at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes back, every eye will see that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is King. And so we have this idea that concealment is the prelude to manifestation. The kingdom has already been revealed in in Jesus in his first coming. 
The king has come. He said the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. The kingdom has been, but it also will be revealed. There's a sense in which the kingdom is here to see now and a sense in which it is yet to be revealed. In the coming of Jesus, a certain degree of kingdom light has has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus, which means something. It means that you need to pay careful attention to the revelation that you have received. Jesus is coming and he is revealing himself and he is revealing the kingdom and he is speaking and he's sharing truth. And it is your responsibility to pay attention to the revelation that you have been given. To hear is the language he keeps using. And and the language he used last week in the paragraphs we looked at then. Hear, listen, listen, listen. Pay attention to the revelation you have received. And that's verses 24 and 25. Look there again. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, that is the measure you use what you hear, It will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Um, The big idea there is something like this. The degree to which you use God's revelation is the degree to which you will benefit from it and the degree to which you will understand it. If you value God's revelation, you will be given more and more light and more and more understanding. The more you value God's words and the teachings of Jesus, the better you are going to understand the kingdom of God and what God is doing. And if you don't value and use God's revelation, what you, what you get is more darkness. Even what you have will be taken away. Basically, the spiritually rich get richer and the spiritually poor get poorer. And it all hinges on what a person does with the revelation he has been given. God has spoken. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the words and truths that Jesus is putting on the table and revealing? You're either going to soak all that up or you're going to hear with hunger and thirst or you're going to not be interested. What are you doing with God's words? Personally, I love East Indian food. It is one of my favorite kinds of food. I love to go out to eat at an Indian buffet. I just love Indian food. Well, a few years back, an East Indian couple invited our family over for dinner and they had prepared a feast. Both the husband and wife are both excellent cooks and they just, all this food, and I get this first plate full and I just gobble it up. You know, it's one of those, you know, like I probably need to eat fast here to get as much in as possible. And so I gobbled up my first plate and the hostess just piled up a second plate. And I started eating that and sooner or later, you know, I'm full. Like I'm, I'm done. (laughs) You know, as great as it is, like, I don't have any more room. And I just, she put it on my plate, so I kept eating it, and and then more came, and I kept eating. I'm like, I'm about to burst the gut here. Like, I I just can't go on eating anymore. And I didn't, I honestly didn't know how to to keep the food from coming anymore. I was like, oh, no, no, like, I I cleaned up my plate. I'm, I'm good. And there, more came. Like, how do I get this vicious cycle to stop? <laughs> like, it just keeps coming. And what I eventually learned in that setting was the way to get it to stop was actually to leave food on your plate. If you clean it, more is coming. Like, you just got to leave it there. And so that's eventually what I did. And I think what we just read here, uh, this, uh, that sort of demonstrates how God works. He works kind of like that and revealing his truth to us. You keep devouring that. You keep taking what you've been given and you keep gobbling up. Do you know, do you know what's going to happen? 
God's just going to keep uh, piling more and, and, and exposing it to you, helping you understand it. You keep devouring it, God's going to keep helping you grasp it and understand it more and more and more. The spiritually rich get richer. But he just gave us an alternative to that, and that's basically the idea, you just leave that food on your plate. And your plate will be taken away. And all of us are, are, are going to respond to God's word and the light that he gives, the revelation about himself and the kingdom. We are going to do that. We are going to take it and we are going to receive it. We're going to hunger and thirst for it. And God will give us more and more understanding of what he's saying or we're going to be, I am good. I don't need that. Pay attention to the revelation that you have received. Gobble it up. And I want to ask you, are you doing that? The, the kingdom and the revelation of the kingdom demand a response. Jesus didn't come to be hidden. He came revealing truth about himself and about the kingdom. And you have a responsibility to do something with that. And while it would be true specifically of the words of Jesus, it's true of the entirety of scriptures. What are you doing with this book? Are you hungering and thirsting for God's truth? And uh, It really is a great joy the more you study it. The Spirit of God is working to open your eyes and help you get it. And that should be the pattern of your life and mine. Uh, because Jesus spoke about the kingdom, you need to hear what he says about it, about its revelation. It has been revealed in Jesus, and it will be fully revealed when he comes again. It will be crystal clear. There's a second aspect of the kingdom that you need to hear about, though. You need to hear about the growth of the kingdom. Uh, each of the next three paragraphs tells us something about how the kingdom grows, that that. that that it actually develops or grows or something of that nature. And two of the next three paragraphs contain parables. Uh, as we jump into these parables, just a couple notes about parables in general. Uh, don't assume that imagery transfers from one parable to the next. So we looked at a, a few parables last week or one big parable last week, and it's easy to assume that if something meant uh, one thing in that parable, then it would mean the same thing in the next parable. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, for example, if you take the bird imagery in the parable last week, the parable of the soils, uh, uh, the bird is specifically representing Satan, and he comes and he gobbles up the seed. It's a very negative image. Uh, but in the parable of the mustard seed that we'll get to in a few moments, the birds refer, or at least seem to refer to something positive. Uh, very good chance they're going to refer to the Gentile nations coming to faith in Christ and becoming part of the kingdom of God. So don't assume that one image in one parable means the same thing in the next. And also don't feel the need to attach every element of the parable to a, spe a specific corresponding element of life. Uh, often parables are simply conveying one or two really big ideas or one or two really big truths. And it's easy to want to try to press the parables uh, for more than they were meant to convey and, and look for concrete specific meaning in every specific element. And... Uh, I think we just have to be careful there. What, we're trying to grasp what's the really big idea here or a couple of the really big threads running through here and, and be cautious from pressing things too far. Okay, with those things in mind, what do the following two parables teach us about the growth of the kingdom? Well, I can tell you this. Both parables are stories of surprise. What happened? Well, oh, they're surprising. There's something very surprising in both of them. First, we learn that the kingdom grows miraculously. It's a miracle. Look at verses 26 to 29 again. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Uh, Just like the growth of a seed into a plant, the growth of the kingdom is a, a mysterious miracle. Just like God grows garden plants, God grows the kingdom. Well, what, what would that imply? Well, that would mean that growth is not the result of the farmer. The farmer plants the seed, and after that, it just kind of happens. He doesn't make it happen. And in fact, the text goes out of the way to make it very clear that the farmer is not the one that we should credit here. He sleeps and he rises and he sleeps and he rises and he goes to bed again and he gets up and he just is doing what he does. He, he just put the seed in the ground and then he just is living his normal life. He goes to bed and gets up. He goes to bed and gets up again. He doesn't make the seed sprout and grow, but that's what happens. And verse 27 tells us that he knows how, not how. I have no idea how that works. I just put the seed in the ground and it, do you know what happens? It works every year, just like that. The earth produces by itself, the text says. We get our word, our English word, automatically from the underlying Greek word there. Success is is very much not the result of the farmer. Every year, my wife and I have the exact same discussion, and I'm sure we'll have it again this year. Should we plant a garden? And the conversation goes like this. Gardens are a lot of work. Should we plant one? Is it worth it? I don't know. And we start having that discussion. It's like, yeah, but we like gardening. And, ah, you know. And eventually, well, we typically say something like this. I don't know. We probably don't have time this year. I don't know. Like, that's a big commitment of several months. But every year, we decide to do it anyway. And I, I find I typically say something like this to my wife. Well, you know, let's just get the thing planted. We can do that in a day or a few hours or, or whatever. Let's just do that and we'll see what happens. And if we don't have time to touch the thing, that's okay because we'll probably still get a decent harvest. As long as the plants get over the weeds at some point, we'll be fine. <laughs> so that's what gardening's like at the Utley House. <laughs> but it's true. We'll typically, some years we put more time and sometimes we put less and every year we have a harvest. The gardener does play an important role, but just to be clear, he doesn't make anything grow. He cannot produce anything. And that's one of the major points here in this parable. Success is not the result of the farmer. What the farmer can do, he can partner with God. But he can't produce anything. Growth is not the result of the farmer. Growth is the result of God and his grace. Just as God is the one responsible for the growth of plants, God is the one responsible for the growth of his kingdom. Success is always the result of God and his grace. Jesus started something that, if I could word it this way, is going to come to fruition. The kingdom grows miraculously. There is mystery but certainty to the growth of the kingdom. I can't explain it. You can't explain it. It's a mystery. And yet it's certain. You need to remember that the growth of the kingdom does not depend on human effort to achieve it. 
Uh, you realize that you cannot produce the kingdom of God in yourself or in other people or in your family or in your country. You, you cannot produce that. You can be a partner, but not a producer. And I think what that should do is that should cause you to focus on uh, faithfully living the gospel out in everyday life and focus on testifying to the gospel, uh, planting seeds, seed sowing, and living it out in prayer. Okay, we're, we're, we are going to share, we are going to testify to the good news of the kingdom. We are going to live a kingdom life. And we're going to pray that God would do what only God can do. That's the work of the farmer. And remember that just as the growth of the plant can't really be explained or manufactured by the farmer, the growth of God's kingdom cannot be explained or manufactured by God's people. And it is a big problem, a major problem, when we think that we can explain it. If a person can explain and they can take credit for some kind of growth or good thing spiritually, that's a problem. If a person can say, hey, let me explain to you why my kids trusted Christ and why my kids turned out. Here's what I did. You know, I did this, 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 and that. And it was just that simple. It's what I did. Really? But you can partner, but you can't produce. If you can explain that about your kids, or if you can explain why this church or that church or some other church grew, well, we did this and we did that. We had this amazing strategy and method and program and oh yeah, we I mean we had, we we pulled that thing off with such great excellence. Or we have better people than anywhere else. Like we just have the the top notch, the choicest of people. If at any point we think that we could start to explain these things, that's a problem. Because in this farm in this passage, the farmer can't can explain it. I don't know how. I, I don't know. I just put the seed in the ground. He doesn't even try. He just knows that this was the work of God. The miraculous growth of the kingdom, if it should speak to us about uh, success and who that can be attributed to, it should also, on the flip side of that, probably tell us something about our perspectives about failure. We might think something like this to ourselves. Well, you know, what if we had done better? Maybe we wouldn't be in this situation. What if we or our parents or our grandparents had done better in this country? What if we had done better in this family? What if we had done better in this church or in this ministry? Well, let's just be really clear. You do have a biblical responsibility to be a godly citizen, a godly family member, and a godly church member. Every single one of us have certain uh, farmer responsibilities that we, by the grace of God, should do with all of our might to the best of our ability for His glory. And yet, somehow, God's kingly sovereignty surpasses even our failures. So does our failures. God's kingdom is steadily moving forward, and it has endured no setbacks. It has not been deterred. It, it has not uh, been thwarted. How could we make arguments like that? We can't. The kingdom grows miraculously. And do you know how else it grows? The kingdom grows astronomically. 
Look at verses 30 to 32 again. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Uh, In the time of Jesus, the mustard seed would have been the smallest seed that was at least commonly known to people. A mustard seed is minuscule, but it will actually grow up uh, in in some cases to become a massive shrub uh, of 10 to 12 feet tall. It's it's kind of a shrub bush, not necessarily what you might think of with a tree, but a very large shrub or bush. And Jesus is contrasting the minuscule start of the kingdom with its massive culmination. The culmination is exponentially larger than the beginning. The parable contains a a surprising shift from obscurity to greatness. I mean, this tiny little seed, just this obscure little thing, into something great and massive. A contrast from small beginnings to great results. And a contrast with the smallest of the seeds to the tallest of the shrubs. So let's just consider the minuscule beginning of the kingdom. The beginning seems so insignificant when we think about the kingdom coming. There's an everyday man. His name is Jesus. In many ways, he seems very ordinary. He's from Nazareth. He doesn't look very much like a king. And he's walking around with 12 ordinary men, uh, several of which are fishermen. Nobody in the group is anything that anybody that's really standing out in society is someone that's really wealthy or successful or powerful. And there are a few other followers who are nothing to write home about either. That king and that kingdom don't look like very much at all, do they? Do they? It's almost imperceptible. And even those very small beginnings, it's, almost, it's like they got stamped out a, a few years in. I mean, the king, the king of the Jews, that's what's, he's hanging on a cross and that's what's written above him, Jesus, the king of the Jews. It's over. As far as a human eye can see. It's so small, it's almost imperceptible like a mustard seed. That's where it starts. But consider the massive culmination of the kingdom. The mustard seed turns into a massive shrub. Just think a bit about the difference between the first coming of Jesus as I just described it. And the king dies. And you think about the first coming in contrast with the second coming of Jesus. He rose again after he died. He triumphed over the grave. He ascended up into heaven. He sat down and something is still going to happen. He's going to come back. And there is a massive exponential difference between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The kingdom of God will surpass all the kingdoms of the earth in power and glory. It will engulf them. And there are so many statements like this in the book of Revelation. We'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, but before we do, verse 32 of Mark chapter 4 mentions the birds of the air. That This plant grows up so big it has branches so large that the birds of the air can come uh, nest within its shade. Based on Old Testament imagery, there's a good chance, and I don't want to be too dogmatic about this, but there's a good chance that the birds are a reference to the Gentile nations coming into the kingdom and experiencing the benefits, protection, shade, and salvation that it provides. And we get to the book of Revelation. I mean, 
the Bible starts out so well, right? Everything's right and good in the Garden of Eden. And all of that's lost and destroyed. And you, you read through chapter after chapter, book after book of the Bible, and you come all the way to the end. In the final few chapters in the book of Revelation, we start hearing uh, so much about the king. Consider the words of Revelation 7, 9 to 10, which say this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Think about those birds back in Mark. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. There is a king. And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a picture. Something similar is found in Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The culmination of the kingdom. It is so massive, so grand, so glorious. And yet, where did it start? It started so small. You may be familiar with William Carey. He has been named the father of the modern missionary movement. He served and ministered in India And he spent his first seven years there uh, ministering, and seven years in, he saw they saw their very first convert, first person come to Christ. He spent more than forty years ministering there in India, and yet the fruit of his labor, honestly, by many, was probably considered relatively small, minimal. And yet he was making statements like this: "The future is as bright as the promise of God." And expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That was William Carey, but what he saw in his life wasn't particularly great or grand. You may also be familiar with the missionary Adoniram Judson. He served in a place called Burma, and and very much like William Carey, he didn't see his first convert till seven years in. And all sorts of things happened to Adoniram Judson there in Burma, difficult things, tragedies, things like that. And he would actually end up dying, going to his grave, feeling as if very little had happened there in Burma for the cause of Christ. That very little fruit came from his work there. And yet he was faithful. He continued on. He he made this statement, In spite of sorrow, loss, and pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain. We reap on Zion's hill. Uh, Both of those men, years of ministry, seemed like they saw very little fruit and growth. But we know now, I mean, as church history has rolled on, that the long-term impact of the ministry of those two men and their families and their co-workers has been enormous. Absolutely enormous. My wife was telling me about a, a group of Burmese Christians that she met a few years back and that particular group of Christians, it was, it was a church here, I think in Canada, could trace their roots all the way back to Adoniram Judson. Just amazing. He didn't know that. The kingdom grows astronomically. The mustard seed parable ought to engender confidence and hope. A passage like this should encourage us 
I don't know about you, but you, you probably have a sense of discouragement by much that you see in the world right now. I mean, if you spend very much time at least looking at what you see in the world, you, there, one approach is like, yeah, don't read news headlines, <laughs> just sort of pretend like all that's not going on. That's one approach. But I mean, you read hardly anything in the news, headlines, what's going on. What's your eyes see? It's discouraging. Is Jesus really winning? His kingdom? I mean, I see a lot of stuff. I see a lot of garbage. I see a lot of things that discourage me. It looks like evil's triumphing. And I don't like that. And I'm frustrated and I'm discouraged. I mean, we see these things politically, religiously, and in so many other realms. And a passage like this ought to remind us, don't trust what your eyes see. Jesus didn't tell people to take a look around, did he? No. He said, listen. He said, hear what I am telling you. Take heart. You can have confidence and hope in the king. And I think we ought to as well to remember not to despise the day of small things. Most of us are small people farming in small fields in terms of our gospel endeavors and our ministry efforts. And it's so easy to uh, just to be prone to measure success by the wrong metrics, by numbers, by this, by that. And yet that's typically not good. Jesus says, Look at how small this thing started. Look at how bleak it looked at the beginning. And then read the book of Revelation. See and evaluate your own gospel life and ministry discouragements and even quote-unquote failures, if you think of them that way, through the lens of the larger picture of the kingdom of God. If you're not looking at them through that lens, you're probably not viewing them accurately. Go back to Judson again. He was disappointed by what he felt he had accomplished, and yet God was doing something amazing. And don't assume that bigger is always better, whether that's uh, in church or ministries or whatever may be going on. God often works through very small venues and does very great things all around the world. And one final truth about the growth of the kingdom, the kingdom grows through God's word. It grows miraculously, it it grows astronomically, and yet Jesus ends this little section by reminding us, what do we attribute that growth to? The Word of God, and God Himself, the Spirit of God. Look at verses 33 and 34, and just take note of the reference to the Word of God. With many such parables, He spoke the Word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The kingdom grows through God's words and specifically through the gospel itself. Jesus gives truth. In verse 33, uh, he continues to offer truth through the parables. He spoke the word to them. He spoke the word to them, parable after parable, many, many parables to those who would have ears to hear it. Jesus is dispensing truth, and further we see that Jesus gives understanding. On verse 34, we read that Jesus explained everything to his disciples, that he had taught the crowds through parables. If you have ears to hear the truth that Jesus makes available, he offers his help so that you can understand it. God's putting his word out there. The gospel is is being planted, it's going forth, and the spirit of God works so that people will understand it. The kingdom grows through the word of God and the spirit of God. 
There's an ancient Greek parable that says this, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. If you throw those two in a ring together, who would you expect to win, the fox or the hedgehog? Well, I mean, the fox, I mean, he think about how all the tricks he's got up his sleeve. And yet every time the fox and the hedgehog encounter each other, somehow, some way, the hedgehog always wins. The fox has all kinds of tricks up his sleeve, but the, the hedgehog literally only has one move. He curls up into a little ball, and his spikes go in every direction, and he's good. Doesn't matter what the fox tries. He has one thing that he does, and he does that one thing really, really well. Thinking about that parable, do the people of the king have anything like that? You know, like our one move. This is the one thing that we do again and again and again and again, and we try to do it well. Oftentimes, Christians and churches have all kinds of amazing strategies to grow and to build the kingdom. Oh, we'll do this and we'll do that, and we've got all this great planning and ways that we can do this. And yet it's like Jesus is trying to remind us here at the end of this passage that there's just one kingdom move. There's just one kingdom play. And it's the word of God. And more specifically, it's the gospel. We preach it. We teach it. We love it. We live it. The gospel, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, is the power of God. And God uses the gospel. He uses the word of the king to build the kingdom. Um, maybe a few thoughts on that. I think it's or some reminders that we're not uh, soul winners. That language is sometimes used that like we can go out there and we can win souls. According to passages like this, we're given different imagery. We're seed sowers. We're planters. We're farmers. The power is in the seed. And it is that message, it is that truth that we take and we put it out there and we share it and we plant it and we live it. And God, through the power of his seed and the work of the Holy Spirit, God does something amazing. We're seed sowers. Also, we're not really transformers of culture and society. We're gospel light. We're taking the gospel out into everyday life and we're living it. And the power resides in the king and his word from which we drink and by which we live. The kingdom grows through the word of God. That's where our focus needs to be. And we can get focused on so many different things when what the king wants us to do is to take his word and to take it out and to share it and to live it. And we will watch God do amazing things time and time and time again. The kingdom grows through the word of God. Jesus spoke about the kingdom, and you and I need to hear and listen to what he says about its growth. The kingdom is steadily moving forward, even though it might not look like it, and it has endured no setbacks. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and we want to listen and live by what he says. Will you bow your head with me?